You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. Well, amen. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. And we're going to try to close out 1 Corinthians today. We're going to try 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning at verse 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning at verse 15. Um, I want to begin with the words. John F. Kennedy, in his inaugural address, I think 1961, in his inaugural address, he closed that address by using these words. You know, when you're my age, you can remember these moments. He said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He further went on to say to the world, he said to the world, ask not what America can do for you, but what we can all do together, united for the good of all mankind. But again, he was saying to Americans, ask not. It's an unbelievable speech. I went back and listened to it uh, this morning when I was walking my dog, and then I, I was also listening to President Obama's speech and his inaugural address in 2008 where President Obama compared America to a patchwork quilt. And President Obama said, we're like a patchwork quilt to the world. We are a picture of ethnicities and races and languages and tribes and people from all walks of life that have somehow been knitted together. And as I listened to Obama's inaugural address in 2008, and I listened to 1961, the inaugural address of John F. Kennedy, I heard great similarity. And my question was, as I listened to these both Democrats was where have we got off track? What has brought about a, such a polarization in this country today and in many ways questions our ability to be the leader to the world? We talked last week about what it means to be a servant. And we said that if there is a key to a family, you know, people sometimes, and I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, Sheila and I are going on 45 years of marriage, people have often asked us, what is the key to your marriage? Well, y'all seem to be in love. You raised your kids. You're, you've got grandkids now. You, you still seem to be in love, still seem to be on the same page, still working for the Lord. What's the key? Let me tell you what Sheila and I this week talking about this said. The answer to that is we both, not one, we both have servant hearts. We by nature are both servants. We not only serve others through ministry, we also serve each other. We just naturally serve one another. We don't wait for the one to serve us. We serve each other. My mother-in-law used to, could not stand it. If I'd say, Sheila, would you bring me a glass of tea? It just eat her. It just eat her up. She was a liberal left, you know. She, she didn't. She didn't have very good opinion of me, but she didn't realize that I was just as quick to bring a glass of tea to Sheila. It was a servant art. It went both ways, and that's the key on the Fourth of July weekend. That's the key to what makes a great nation. Now look what Paul says here. Paul said in verse 15, he said, well, in verse 14, he says, do everything in what? Let's say it together. Do everything in what? 
in love. And he's talking there about agape love, that sacrificial servant kind of love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. And let's just stop here and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just love you. We thank you, Lord. We pray that as we uh, look, dear Lord, today at what this scripture may say to us, that, Lord, you'll begin to give us a servant heart. Lord, you'll make dads servants to wives, to their family, to their children, grandchildren, to their church, to their community, that you'll make wives and children and, and all the family have a servant heart, servants to each other, working to make the home a better place doing that in the church, doing that in the neighborhood, in the community. We don't wait for somebody to pick up the trash. We pick it up. We don't wait for somebody to serve us. We get up and we serve others. We have the heart of Martha who waited on Jesus. And yet we do not forget Mary who sat at his feet. So Lord, may you speak to us. Lord, use me today as a tool in your hand. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now, you remember last week, and I'm just going to kind of look over my notes a little bit, but Paul is concluding this letter to the church at Corinth. And I wrote down it's a painful, gut-wrenching, honest, open letter. If you look at First and Second Corinthians, 29 chapters of it are Paul admonishing and really in many ways coming down hard on the church at Corinth. Let me tell you, in raising kids... There were times that, and I believed in corporal punishment, physical punishment. There were times that I disciplined. Now, Ledge and Jeffrey, you could beat them within an inch of their life and in order to even get them to stop and look. I could look at Emily and look like I was slightly displeased. <laughs> you know, it was just, you, you discipline differently, right? Um you know, so the reality is Paul has come down very, very hard on this church, and he's now concluding it, and it's not niceties or pleasantries. He's not giving some parting greetings. It's still the inspired, it's still the inspired word of God. And what Paul does is Paul does this. He says to this dysfunctional church, he says, you have an example in your body of believers, a man by the name of Stephanus, who I led to Christ. Paul said, this is a good model of a servant heart. This is somebody you can look to. He's a good example. He's a good model. And you remember last week I said this. I asked you the question, who is your hero? Who's your model? Who's somebody that you look to as an example? Maybe as a Christian man or Christian woman. Maybe as a wife. Maybe as a mother. Maybe as a grandmother. Maybe as a church member. You look to them and you gain some sense of what you want to be yourself. They're an example. They're a hero. And we went on to make this statement last week. The greatest problem in our society is that a lot of us have either no hero or bad heroes right you know I, I just finished the book by Jonathan Isaac Jonathan Isaac was the number six pick in the NBA Jonathan Isaac plays for Orlando Magic 
he wrote a book called I Stand. And if you remember during the initial, uh, after George Floyd, after Black Lives Matter, and the initial response, there was this one African-American NBA player who stood while all the other players didn't, uh, nailed and if you remember, Jonathan Isaac, the Orlando Magic, a very, very capable, phenomenal player in and of his own right. First string, setting records. Jonathan Isaac said, I refuse the Black Lives Matter narrative of why we are where we are in this country on race relations. He instead took a biblical narrative and said systemic racism and the problems with what happened with George Floyd are not the result of what Black Lives Matter may say or their remedy, which may be a Marxist answer. He said, our problem is we have not embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a Christian. He gave a biblical narrative and he showed an enormous amount of courage. He has since been proven right in what his conclusions were. And he is a very capable leader who has put his life on the front line of solving. Hey, listen, unlike Black Lives Matters members and founders who have spent millions of dollars padding their pocket, buying homes. Jonathan Isaac has built ministries, ministries here in this country and around the world. He is solving the problem of systemic racism. He is fixing the problem and bringing about racial reconciliation. He is a true hero. When I finished this African-American prominent NBA player, I thought to myself, God, I want to be like that man. I want to have the courage of that man. You see, a hero doesn't matter his color. It matters that when you look at him, he's a brother or sister in Christ. Paul said Stephanus is that kind of individual. Now, what made him that kind of hero? What made him stand out to Paul? And remember, we said last week, Paul said he was devoted to ministry. Look at it in verse 15. He said, you know, you know the household of Stephanos. You know him. He was the first convert that I had in Acacia. They have, listen to this, devoted themselves. You remember that word devoted meant what? What did it mean? You remember we talked about a drug addict. What does it mean? It means to be addicted. Paul said Stephanos is addicted, he is devoted to ministry. He lives a disciplined, structured life that is sold out. He gets a buzz, he gets a high from ministry. Let me ask you something. Does God's Holy Spirit in your life so govern your life that when you do an act of ministry, when you do something to stand up for the, for the less fortunate, when you take a stand for people that are being hurt or abused, or when you do an act of service, do you get a buzz out of it? Does he give you a little bit of a feel-good? A little bit of a high? Let me tell you something. It does me. Have you ever been at a gas station pumping gas? And I've had people tell me this. 
They had a feeling. They looked over at some woman who was gassing her vehicle, and they could tell that she didn't have much money. She was putting in, uh, you know, $3.75 or whatever it was that she had paid for. She had gone in and paid for. And somebody, I remember one, I remember an individual one time, an old van pulled up. This woman got out, and she just was sweating the car the vehicle didn't have air conditioning kids were in that vehicle she just looked like she was a beat down wore out and this man said he felt such a power an urging as a man of god as a christian he felt such an urging in his spirit that he ha he felt like god was saying to him go fill that woman's vehicle up with gas he walked over he said ma'am listen I hope I don't offend you. I just want you to know I'm a Christian. And I just was, while I was pumping gas, I was praying for you. And I felt the Lord told me to fill your vehicle up with gas. The woman began to weep uncontrollably. She said, I've got $3.75, all the money I have. And she began to tell her story. And before long, that man knew. You know what that man said? when he, You know what he told me afterwards? He said, I felt like I was on a high. When was the last time you had that kind of high? Well, anyway, Paul said this man was addicted. Now watch what. That's what made him stand out. But look, look at verse 16. Paul said... What does he say to the believers, the members at Corinth? He says, listen, you need to submit. You need to submit to such as these, Stephanos, and to everyone who what? Joins in the work, and don't you love the next words? And labors in it. The word submit is the Greek word hupotasso. It means to, you've heard me use this word a lot. Wives are submit to husbands. Children are to submit to their parents. And the reality is, as husbands, you and I are to submit to God. In fact, Paul said this before he told wives submit to husbands. Husbands, you know, before he even brought it up, he said submit to one another. In other words, fall in rank. Now what Paul's saying here, he's saying, listen, you need to take somebody like Stephanos and you need to make him his model. Listen to what John MacArthur said in his commentary. He said, practically, that means that we should, listen to this, say amen if you're listening. Practically, that means that we should find, listen to this, a godly man or woman who is addicted to the will of God and the Lord's work and listen, makes that person their model for their life. You and I are called to look for somebody that we can emulate, somebody that we can look to. Listen again to what Mark MacArthur said. Find a godly man or woman who is addicted to the Lord's will and the Lord's work. And make that person your pattern for your life. When I was growing, when we moved to Yazoo City in 19, I don't know, it was a long time ago, 67, I think. I was 13 years old. We had a pastor by the name of Young Gerard, uh, Brother Gerard. Sheila's nodding her head because she remembers. He was a very unintimidating individual. He was a very soft-spoken, quiet man, a sweet man. He had a son and a daughter, Bob Jr. His daughter-in-law for years was over the nurses at Baptist Hospital. 
uh, great family, great people. He died of cancer in his 50s. Brother Gerard taught me how to pastor. I remember one time when I was in college, I was at a low point. And I'll be honest with you, there was a time in my life in college I wanted to take my life. When I was at Mississippi State, I was at a very, very dark time and I could have taken my life in that moment. And I want you to listen to me. I had nowhere to go. I was living in the back of an ambulance service because I felt like in that moment I had nowhere to go. I so was walking across a campus one day when I was feeling so low and the thought rolling around in my head to take my life. And a man in one of the MSU work trucks hung out the window. I was late for class, alone at Mississippi State on that campus of thousands of students, alone, walking across there, late for class, and a man hollered out looking at me, hanging out the window out of a work truck. God loves you. And in that moment, his act of service what might have looked foolish to even the person that was in the truck with him in that moment spoke volumes. He'll never know that act of service. He will never know. It was instrumental in turning my life, went to seminary, went on, married her, had my children, went to the mission field, went to the military, and have faithfully served the Lord for 40-something years. He'll never know that till one day you get, we get to heaven and the Lord looks at me and says, hey, you remember that guy that hung out the window? Come over here. I want you to meet him. And he and I will embrace his brothers in Christ. Why? Because of that service, that submitting Brother Gerard was that example to me of what it meant to be a pastor, but even that man's act in that moment, a single statement shouted from a truck was a picture to me what it meant to be a servant. When I've been going through the calling, uh, uh, preaching, when I was in seminary in New Orleans, I remember going to First Baptist Church, Kenner, Dr. Ron Herod, and boy, Dr. Ron Herod was a preacher. And I would listen to Dr. Ron Herod, and I would literally begin to mentor. I would emulate. Listen, everyone listen. I used to listen to hours of Billy Graham preaching in the 1960s and the 1970s. And I would ask myself the question, what is it about this man that can captivate and consume the world? And Billy Graham pre preached with a unbelievable passion and an urgency. Do you know how many newspapers Billy Graham read every day? He read three newspapers of every day to prepare him for the pulpit and to, my, and to remind him of news that was taking place all over the world. I would look at these men like Dr. Ron Herod. Uh, I, I read, I just read all the time. Hey, I've raised my kids and I went and bought James Dobson's How to Raise Strong-Willed Children. I don't have no strong... Well, I do. They're all grown. But I'm reading it again. Am I reading it for me? No, I'm reading it for Emily and Sarah and Belle and Winnie and everybody else in this room. I want to help you figure out how to raise strong-willed children. Not meaning yours are. I know yours are not. But the reality is, is that this is what it means. So let me ask you something. Is there somebody in your life right now, 
a man or a woman in your life that you look at them and you say, I want to be like them. Because Paul said, you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. You know what Paul said to the church at Corinth? He said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Can you look at some, if somebody came up to you and said to you, I, I want you to know I love you and I admire you and I want you to know I look to you as an example of what a Christian ought to be and I'm following your example. How many of you would answer and go, don't follow my example? If you say that, that's unbiblical. You and I are to live the kind of example, the kind of life out before our children and everybody else that the reality is our children and people around us can look at and they want to emulate, they want to be like us. Dad, Mom, that's the key. And I love the wording here. Paul said this. He said to sum submit, hupatasso, to submit, to look to these people like Stephanos and to anyone like them, listen, who joins in the work and labors at it. I wrote this down. Some join, but they never labor. Some are members, but they're not models. What's the difference? What's the difference? What is the difference between a person who's a member of this church and somebody who's a model of this church? I, I can give you examples of members. Some are here. You're a member, but you're not a model. One of our models is not here today, but she probably has a good reason. And if you remember when Janice McBride last Sunday in the invitation, Janice McBride with all of her health issues, she came down and she had to work her way and kneel over here in, the, in this side. And you know what, and God forgive me because I didn't say what God told me to say. God told me to say in that moment, if she can get to the altar and she can kneel, every one of you ought to be down here. And you may say, well, what kind of example from the moment I stepped foot in this church? Janice McBride has been a model, an example of a servant. And for the 25, going on 26 years that I've been here, Janice McBride sat at a little half-moon table with little preschoolers around her and poured into them Sundays and used to be Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, pouring her life into those children. And she's gone through great heartache, great sorrow, more sorrow than many of you in this room. And yet has never lost that heart to serve. And last Sunday came down and knelt here and cried out and prayed. What an example. You know what the difference is in people who are members and people who are models? Is people who are models, people who labor, are always learning and growing and discovering new ideas, new methods to do what they do, to do what they do for Christ and to do it better. I am, I am 66 years old. I still study Greek, still study Hebrew, still study the Old Testament, read through the Bible consistently all the time, reading, listening to everything I can get my hands on in every way to make me the best I possibly can be. Why? So I can pastor and preach to you. I want to develop my skills. I want them to be better. Are you developing your skills? Are you trying to do what you do for Christ? Are you trying to do it better? 
Let me ask you this. Are you trying to do what you do in your job, which is to boast, which remember the Bible says, do everything as unto the Lord, everything you are doing, whether you're a builder, whether you're a teacher, whatever you do, whether you're working the sound, whether you're working preschool, whatever you're doing, whether you're cooking meals, listen, everything that you're doing, you're trying to do it better and better and better and better because you're doing it as unto the Lord. In the worship, you know what I said, Lord, take me, please God, take me but don't let me fizzle out. Please, God, take me. And I thought to myself, what a way to die if I died with my hand raised up. You know, sometimes we get upset when the people that we love begin to talk about dying. Let me tell you something. For us, it ought to be a great celebration. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says we're to celebrate those that are going out. I heard of a story one time. My great-grandmother... My great-grandmother was on her deathbed. She was dying. My mom told this story. She said, my great-grandmother died. They thought she was dead, and the family walked away. Back in those days, people died in their homes, and I sure liked that a lot better. They weren't died doped up, and they weren't died separated from their families. My great-grandmother died, and it may have been my great-great-grandmother. But anyway, my mom said that the family finally said, that's it, it's over, and they started to walk away. But some of them stayed there, and they began to pray, and they began to cry out. And all of a sudden, my great-grandmother, all of a sudden, she gasped and took a breath and came back to life. And you know what she did? She looked at them and said, don't you dare. And every ounce of her being said, don't you dare pray for me back again. Why? Because she had family and people that she loved waiting on the other side, absent from the body to be present with the Lord. You and I need to understand it's just simply a door that we walk through in a matter of a second, in a moment, just that quickly. Your heart quits whatever happens and you're instantly with Christ and all the people that have gone on ahead of you. But here you have somebody, what makes, a, what makes this kind of individual Whatever you do, I wrote this down, whatever you do, are you trying to do it better? Are you learning and growing and implementing new ideas? Are you doing everything or is, does God get the leftovers of your life? Does God get what's left over? They ain't a one of you. And I may be in trouble here, but I don't think there's hardly a one of you that hasn't aggressively taken your social media and used it for the cause of Christ as a tool for evangelism. It's not my responsibility to be the only one that brings people into this church. And it is not my responsibility to share the messages that come from this pulpit. If the messages that come from this pulpit are not worthy for you to share them, then my friend, you need to find you another church or you need to get another pastor. Greatest tool of evangelism may be as simple as a pop of a button and just simply to say, my pastor preached a message that I believe can affect your heart and make you a better person. You know, the problem is in our life is Sheila and I, we were asked to eat with a, with a staff member of a large church. He wanted to talk to us about some 
questions that he had and we were sitting there talking and he was talking about he's in seminary and he talked about spiritual formations his spiritual formations class I looked at Sheila afterwards I said Sheila do you know what he meant and Sheila said no I said spiritual formations is a class that basically teaches you and I disciplines of the faith to help us look more like Christ sanctification sanctification hagiosmos in the Greek is God conforming you and I into the image of Jesus let me ask you something do you look more like Jesus today than you did last Sunday do I what is spiritual formations? Being conformed into the image of Christ. One writer said integrating spiritual disciplines into our life, listen, that develop and deepen our relationship with Christ and our walk. Listen to what Paul said. In fact, take, listen, this is worth turning. Take a right and look at 1 Timothy 4, 7. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, watch what Paul says to Timothy. In um, First Timothy, and I'll, I'll get there too. I'm trying not to lick my hands, but sometimes you just have to. Uh, for First Timothy four seven. Watch what Paul said here. And I would dog ear this page, parent, because in 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 First Corinthians, I mean First Timothy, First Timothy four seven, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, now do you see it there? What does it say? Train yourself to be godly. The King James may have disciplined yourself for the purpose of godliness. And I like that better. I don't know what translation that is, but let me read it again. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. In other words, spiritual formations. Me developing some disciplines in my life to deepen my relationship with Christ and to make me a better example and a model for other people to look to. Right? Paul said to Timothy, he said, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Let me tell you, some of you may not care. Some of you watching, you may not care. You don't care. If you don't care about godliness and you don't care about developing those disciplines, then I, can I tell you something? There's a strong probability that you may not be saved. So let me make that clear to you that stayed at home. If you're not concerned about godliness and about disciplining your life toward godliness, then the reality is you may not really be saved. And you have to deal with that. Oh, I'm not causing you to doubt your salvation. I'm just telling you a reality. And if you don't care, let's say you're saved, but you say, I don't really care. I'm not worried about a disciplined life, about godliness. And yet you say, I'm saved? Then that attitude of not caring about your relationship to Christ, that attitude is in your marriage, in your parenting, in your job, in every, in every relationship that you have. And you may say, well, wait a minute, I think you're being too hard. No, I'm not. 
because Jesus said seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you you men you can't love your wife wife you can't love your husband parent you can't love your child and you can't be a good employee you can't do nothing right you can't even be a good church member until you fall in love with Jesus and you begin to develop de disciplines in your life to develop a deeper, stronger, more intimate relationship with Christ. Listen, have you ever been talking to somebody? This is what I'm talking about. You're, talk, you're in a conversation, you say something, and then all of a sudden you stop and you go, wait a minute, what I just said wasn't true. I shouldn't have said that. Do you know what that is? That's the paraclete, the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is you in a deep, deep relationship with Christ to where Christ is correcting you in the middle of a sentence. You stop mid-sentence. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Will you forgive me? I did that this week. You see, that's what he's talking about here. And if you say, well, I don't care. You know what Vance Havner said? Listen to this. Ledge, I thought this was good. Vance Havner was a great preacher of years ago. He made this statement. He said, the alternative to discipline is disaster. Isn't that true? Richard Foster wrote a, a book called Celebration of Discipline. And then later, another book, Donald S. Whitney. In fact, I brought this book with me. It's called The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. The foreword of this book was written by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer, who wrote Knowing God, which is one of the all-time classics of the 1970s. Teresi was a Presbyterian, and you know him. But J.I. Packer wrote this. This is the spiritual disciplines for the Christian life by Donald S. Whitney, forwarded by J.I. Packer. Listen to what Packer said. Packer made this statement. He said the foundations, the disciplines he lays, talking about this man, are evangelical, not legalistic. In other words, he calls us to pursue godliness through practicing the disciplines, listen, out of a gratitude for the grace that has saved us, not as self-justifying or self-advancing. Listen, we don't carry out these disciplines in our life. We don't do this because we're trying to gain grace, mercy, God's love. We do it out of a reaction to that. Does that make sense? I don't read the Bible trying to get saved. I read the Bible because I'm saved and I want to know more about it. I want to know more about Christ. Does that make sense? Let me, give you, let me give you some disciplines. And disciplines, the disciplines of the faith are designed to develop and lead me to a deeper, more intimate relationship with Christ. Did you understand the word intimate? Do you know that after 46 years of knowing her, I can communicate with her without saying a word? Do you know how many times now that, and you know this, many of you know this, I, I'll say something, she'll go, wow, I was just thinking the same thing. The two become one. We're the, we're the bride of who? We're the bride of who? We're the bride of Christ. 
If, if I have that relationship with my wife and we begin to have the same thoughts and there's some joining of the soul where the two are becoming one, and that's God's words, not mine. That's what God wants for your marriage. He wants you to walk like that. But he wants that with you. He wants a level of such intimacy that he's constantly whispering into your heart. He's saying to you, I need you to say something right now. I was talking to Alicia, my daughter-in-law, whom I love dearly, and they're going through a difficulty right now because her grandmother's very sick and we want to pray for her, a godly woman. But there are levels of conversation in the relationship that I believe Alicia and her grandmother have, a special bonding. And sometimes that bonding is what Christ wants with you and I. He wants to whisper into our heart and give us counsel and say things. Listen, parent, how important is that? 1.30 in the morning, I'm telling the redheaded dentist, now mother of eight, married to a pastor, at 1.30 a.m. in the morning, I sat on the hearth in my in my living room and I wept because I told her I said no you won't hang around with her no more I don't care if she's a member of the church she's leading you down the wrong path and you won't hang around with her no more and you can't do that and you can't do that and then I sat down at 1.30 a.m. and I wept why because the intimate indwelling Holy Spirit was saying you as a parent better break that friendship off now right now or it will lead to destruction and that individual's life is a far different life from the redhead my oldest there are times in your life that God will tell you that's spiritual discipline God wants intimacy with you and he wants you to become that example that he's called and you can't do it without this this is the first discipline the first spiritual discipline is to so get into the word of God the word of God all scriptures second Timothy 3.16 all scriptures God breathed I sat here with a group of people sitting in this section and that section Wednesday night telling them where the Old Testament came from I want to tell you where your Bible came from and it began with the finger of God etching on rock the Ten Commandments the foundation of the word of God all scriptures God breathed it's the breath of God and you know what he says here in this book he said you've got to make time there's three things you got to have you got to have time you got to set aside time you got to get into it and listen to me and that doesn't always mean you're doing it with somebody else even if you're married because one of the disciplines is solitude, silence, being alone with God. There's some things God needs you alone. He needs you. You're his bride. Yeah, you may be married to a husband, or you may be married to a wife, or you may have children, but your devotional life is not always with your spouse. It's not always with your children. It's not even with your Sunday school class. Sometimes the intimacy is between you and God alone in his word. Now, you can come back and say, I come back to Sheila. She comes back to me and says, man, this is what God revealed to me today. Let me tell you, let me read it to you. You got to have time. You got to have a plan. Oh, I'm just, I just open the Bible. There it is. Judas hung himself. I don't like that. Let me look at another one. 
what thou doest do quickly. See, some of you didn't get that, did you? Your enemy knows how to use that tool against you, so you better know how to use it. You make time for the Word of God. You follow some plan, CBT, Chronological Bible, One Year Bible. You, you begin to read, study the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. You need to know his story, his story of redemption. You need a plan and you need to meditate. A discipline is prayer. A discipline is worship. And I'm not going to get into those because we're about out of time. But I want to close with this. You know, Paul closes this. He, said, he says about Stephanos down there in, um, in verse 17. He said, I was glad when Stephanos, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking for you for they refreshed look at that they refreshed my spirit do you refresh people's spirit are you that kind of individual you know what you know what the word means there the word refresh means it's the word that Jesus said when he said and if Jesus were here right now he might look he might say to Miss Tracy he might look at Miss Tracy if Jesus said come unto me Miss Tracy all you that labor heavy laden I'll give you rest. You know what that word that Paul uses here, refresh my spirit? What Stephanos did is what the word Jesus used if he were looking at Miss Tracy. But he says to Miss Tracy, come, take my yoke, it's easy. I'll pull all the way, you rest. You have peace. Isn't that what the world's looking for? She was saved on a college campus, 18-year-old widow, 19-year-old widow, because a college kid was an example of what it meant to have an intimate relationship with Christ. And she looked at Karen McLemore. Listen, married to a guy dealing in drugs, a guy's murdered, drug sale goes bad, everything, her life is a mess. 18, 19 years old, he's murdered, he's killed, and she's a widow. But she saw Stephanos. She saw a young lady named Karen looked at Karen and said, Karen, what is it about you? And Karen said, Sheila, I know Jesus. Do you want to know my Jesus? Is that not the exact words? It is. And Sheila said, I close with this. This is an unbelievable book. This man's named John O'Leary. The book is called On Fire. Let me read something to you. It said when, o when John O'Leary was just nine years old, he barely survived a devastating house fire with burns on 100% of his body. O'Leary's doctors told his parents that he was not expected to make it through the night. But this story didn't end there. O'Leary, bolstered by several extraordinary people in his life, made it through five months of healing in the hospital and then through years of excruciating rehabilitation that followed as he struggled to regain mobility and the control of his body. The insights that he gained through this experience profoundly changed his life. But today, John says that it actually changed him for the better. Listen to this. And if you could see him, you wouldn't believe what he says. And that if he had it to do over again, 
he wouldn't change a thing. How is this possible? What makes some people crumble in the face of adversity while others thrive? What are the secrets each of us glean from John's extraordinary story of resilience? He writes this. Listen to what he writes in his book. He said, I lived an incredibly active life today. He said, I live an incredibly active life today. And many individuals deserve an awful lot of credit for that, but no one more than the therapist in that basement in that darn broom closet stretching through their personal anguish of watching a little boy in pain so that they might liberate him from the scars that bound him. It makes me emotional. It makes me emotional decades later just thinking about them. The therapist. Emily, you'll love this as a therapist. How did they do it? Why not take the easier way? Why not stop when the little boy said, ouch? These therapists knew that stretching is never easy. It's unwanted. It's painful. It's hard on all the parties involved in all facets of life. It's not pleasant to be stretched. It's not pleasurable to stretch others. Yet the pain of today, listen to this, the pain of today unveils the potential of tomorrow, the possibilities of tomorrow. Has it ever occurred to you that the pain that you're going through may be a loving, sovereign God that is stretching you for all the potential and the possibilities of tomorrow? Has it ever occurred to you that the rebellious teenager or the child that you're wrestling with right now or the special need child that you're battling with, has it ever occurred to you that one day God may take that individual and change the course of history for the better? Who in this room is raising the President of the United States? An ambassador, a doctor, a lawyer, solution to cancer. He goes on to say, stretching leads to growth. Growth is frequently painful, but growth is the only evidence of life. Growth is the only evidence of life. The opposite is true. Stagnation is the first step to the grave. You can't be stagnant. You know what the problem is? Some of you in this room, you died a long time ago. Now, I don't mean a good death. You, call, you crawled into a grave a long time ago. You died a long time ago. You're not living life. Your life is misery. Nobody wants your life. I don't want it. You don't listen to nobody. You do whatever you want to do. And you're living for all the wrong things. And you crawled in the devil's grave a long time ago, and that's it. And life's stagnant. Life is nothing anymore. You're just along for the ride. And Jesus says this, I've come to give you life, and I've come to give it to you abundantly. And if you give your life to me, I'll turn it around. 
at 13 years old my dad who's watching this at 13 years old he moved us from Titusville Florida to Yazoo City Mississippi I had a Yankee accent and it was ruthless I was made fun of ridiculed laughed at it was hell I was poked there was a bully that would jab me with those long what they call mother law tongues and I went through abuse being bullied the teacher one time the English teacher made fun of me for the way I talked I was so alone at 13 years of age one day in class I got so scared and so upset I wet myself and I pulled my shirt tail out to cover it up that I would get my education, my bachelor's, my master, my doctorate. I never knew what it would be like to be an officer in the army. I never knew what it would be like to be a missionary. I knew never knew what it would be like to be the main speaker in the largest military base in the European theater on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I never knew what it was to speak Shona. I never thought I would see elephants elephants and lions and giraffes. I never knew what it would be like to live in Africa. I never knew the little boy, that, the 13 year old kid that wet himself, that was bullied that was made fun of would raise four remarkable kids that each in their own right are changing the course of history. What can God do with your life if you give it to him? What does God want to do with your life if you will give it to him? Far more than you could ever imagine. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you and Lord, we love you and praise you. Lord, as we've cl closed out this rich, rich, beautiful book called 1 Corinthians, we do it with a sadness but one day, dear Lord, we know that we will be in heaven. And one day the Apostle Paul will be there. We'll sit and we'll talk about the Corinthians. Paul will introduce us to Stephanos. He'll look at Jeff and Sheila and he'll say, you know, it's interesting that you bring him up. I heard your sermon. We were in heaven hanging over the balcony. Banisters heard that sermon on Stephanos I thought you'd enjoy meeting him Lord may we find examples may we look and find men and women who are such men and women of uh, Christ that we can begin to model ourselves after them people who truly have a servant heart may dear Lord we look at those people who often serve that we can forget about the Bethany, young in marriage, a newlywed, and yet marching all of our kids out, pouring into them, just like Janice McBride did for so long. It's easy, it's easy to forget that. May we never forget the Willie Cox who gets here early, and so many times with Jerry, who gets here early, makes the sausage and biscuit, fixes the coffee, who has another stint in his heart but labors for Christ. 
And the list goes on and on. Lord, help us to have that servant heart sold out, abandoned to the cause of Christ. Help us, dear Lord, to be the one that's at the gas pump who notices when somebody looks like they're struggling, who smiles and goes over and says, let me finish filling this tank up. Would you mind if I pray for you? God, may we be men like Jonathan Isaac who can stand even among our peers and be counted for the cause of Christ even when it's not popular. Lord, may you take every man and woman in the sound of my voice, every young man, every young woman, every uh, young person, every child who will listen. May you, dear Lord, begin to take their life and shape it and mold it and make them into the man or woman that you would have them to be. So that one day when we get to heaven, there'll be a vast multitude that will come. And we'll say what Deidre said last Sunday. She came up, she could hardly talk, she cried. Deidre looked at me and said, Brother Jeff, she said, I remember a long time ago, Alicia told me this story. She was in a line at McDonald's and it wasn't going well. And all of a sudden, God began to convict her heart and led her to pay for somebody else who maybe was not being very Christ-like. She said, that changed me. And this message today has changed me more. God, may you give us those kind of examples. May we be those kind of examples. May our children be able to look at us and say, I want to be like my dad. I want to be like my mom. And then, Lord, help us to live that way. Now, Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you, we pray today that they give their life to you, that they be saved, that they come and they say, you know, I want to surrender my life to Christ and I want to become a Christian because I want God to take my life and to take it into a great adventure called the will of God and we give you glory for the decisions that will be made in the name of Jesus amen you come you come may never be a moment like this moment